0: This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at restoringthecore.com.
1: This is the Lens of Glory, Class Session 2. Welcome to The Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hample. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint, or lens, where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Welcome again. This is uh, session two of the Lens of Glory. Let's pray, and then I want to give a little bit of a synopsis, past, present, and future, of what we're going to be doing. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, I do thank you at this time. We remember the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you allowed us to gather together to look at how we look at Scripture. And may we, in our lesson, speak truthfully and look at Scripture in a way that truly glorifies the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' good name, amen. Okay, what I thought I should do is give just a brief recap. Obviously, I can't do this every week, otherwise the recap would take 20 minutes at the end of the, uh, or once we're getting toward the end of the class in um, February, it would take too long to go through. But just, we're laying foundational work here. And I think it's important to recap from last week. The foundation we're looking at is that we discussed the idea of the art and science of biblical interpretation, sometimes known by the name hermeneutics. And again, I dare venture, you probably don't use that word in everyday conversation. Uh, you probably haven't gone to Meyer lately and talked to somebody cross the meat counter and says, you know, I just hermeneuted a phrase from script. It doesn't come up. It's a very technical term. But, and I'll try to stay away from those. And where I do you use technical terms, I, I want to make sure there's explanation behind it so that somebody just doesn't go, huh? In talking about interpretation, we're looking at things such as distinguishing between what a text says and what it means, because sometimes that distinction really needs to be made because it isn't clear, always, the difference between what it says and what it means. When it comes to Scripture, we have a book which is abundantly clear on the items of who Jesus is, the gospel, and salvation. There are some secondary issues, or secondary points, or if I can call it secondary tertiary, and beyond that, I forget how to quadrary, uh, lesser points, which are not all that easily. Understandable, or they might be a little confusing if you don't have a knowledge of the culture. Again, remember the Gospel of John says that by reading that Gospel, John's intent was that you would come to faith in Christ, not to be confused about the things of Christ. So I, I want to make sure we have that distinction in mind. When it comes to some of the secondary issues, having a knowledge of the culture and the time in which the book is written and the audience to whom it's written can provide some useful insight. But your Christianity does not swing on that. We also talked about some things that can influence the way that we take a look at things of scripture. Uh, We can take a look at things such as age, gender, life circumstances, um, our religious background, a whole number of other items that can actually influence the way we read. One should also remind us that we took a look, and we're going to recover this a little bit. Some errors in the way that you could actually approach Scripture in terms of reading and understanding it. We can't do that comprehensively and exhaustively because I think that there are a gazillion ways in which you could probably follow up a reading of Scripture. And in doing so, we can't go through every list in my... Purpose in doing the class isn't to teach primarily on the errors of reading scripture. It's to teach about what I think is a Bible-centered way of doing this—a Bible-centered way of doing this. So we've taken a look at that. We'll also take a look at uh, not only an what I think is an obvious to us error in the way that we can read scripture, but also one that might be a little bit more subtle because it's a lot closer to home for an evangelical group once we've done that what I want to do is establish the centrality of Christ in the scriptures and that if you have Christ as central in the scriptures what follows from that logically from scripture is that the glory of God is attached to Christ and linked to Christ in such a way that where you see a Christ a Christ-saturated scripture, you can't help but see a glory of God-saturated scripture. And we'll be spending most of the quarter looking at ways in which I believe scripture points us to a glory of God viewpoint in reading scripture. So hopefully it's a synopsis that's covered past, one week, present, this week, future, however many weeks God gives us. Um, oh, also a reminder, we will not be meeting next week. We are having a church-wide brunch, I believe. Uh, yep, that's right, the 16th, we're having that. We will be having, according to Pastor John, so I'll put him on record for this, uh, December 23rd and 30th, we will be having full hour of Sunday school. That might change, but as of the information I got from him last week, that will be the case. Nine, you have? A,
2: it was in the chapel chat, so. Nine or five.
1: At nine. At nine. Nine It's in the, school. School.
3: It's in the yeah. bulletin. Yes. Yeah,
1: okay, good. Good. Thank you. I, I did forget about the nine o'clock. I had seen that. So, yes, please get here early because I'll miss you if you aren't here. <laughs> um, but anyway, just wanted to give you that background. Um, David, I was going to ask you earlier, but I couldn't. I, there was a brief story you told me last week about. A Bible teacher. I can't remember where I came across it. It's it fairly recently. It was in a magazine, do you mind, magazine or something. Do you mind remember. if I? Do you mind telling the story about it, if I can do a quick setup on this? You I want mean, me to tell it, or yeah, mean? no, you tell it. But uh, I just okay. want to do a quick setup of how we got to this. Okay. We were talking last week about certain errors that you could have in reading Scripture. Uh, one of them is having what I've heard called a canon within a canon, and that means. That, okay, quick pop quiz. How many books are in the Bible? 66. Good, good. Okay, 66. The problem is for a lot of Christians nowadays, almost all of the Old Testament is treated as, uh, eh, that's there, we'll get to it later. So basically you have maybe functionally a 29 book canon with the 27 New Testament, and of course you've got to throw themselves some problems. I mean, the Gideons give you that. you kind of got to least that. So where I'm going with that is, I asked last week, and I wasn't asking for a show of hands, but just a thought, how many of us maybe have read through the Gospel of John? Okay, probably most of us, yeah, how many of us have read through the book of Zephaniah? Okay, good, good. (laughs) However... When I mentioned about Zephaniah, David, he had a story he told me after his session. If you don't mind... Well, I actually don't remember if it
4: was actually Zephaniah, but I used that as, as please a... Do. a story. Please, well, please do. Well, this was a story I read in a magazine. I think, I can't remember where I saw it, but it was this, this year sometime. And uh, the point, I think, of the article was the fact that Christians don't read the whole Scripture and don't saturate themselves with the whole Scripture. They tend to concentrate on favorite passages and books in the New Testament talk. So, and the, the story was of a woman who was a, uh, after she became a Christian, she started speaking. Apparently she was quite a dynamic speaker, and she became a Bible teacher and quite a bit of demand. But she looks back on it now and realizes she didn't really know scripture all that well. She kind of was, was, mainly her great speaking ability, apparently, that was, you know, so compelling to people. So, so uh, she went to a seminar, and she wanted to illustrate a point about scripture, and I can't remember even now what that was. But she asked everybody in her group, her seminar or whatever, to turn to thinking, assuming there was no such book, and she was going to illustrate this. She said, uh, her point, and she said that, uh, asked everybody to turn to the uh, book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse such and such, and assuming she'd just get a bunch of blank books and so on. Well, much to her horror, everybody starts turning to Zephaniah, and she didn't have a follow-up point, you know, to make. She wasn't going to teach from Zephaniah. She was trying to make some kind of a point, cute point about. It. So she said that was a real uh, wake-up call for her. You know, she realized she didn't know Scripture nearly as well as she should. She should be standing up, you know, telling other people what Scripture taught. So, so I thought. I, I remember that story stuck in my mind. I thought it was pretty effective to
1: show that, you know. that Certain books do tend to kind of fall through the cracks. And tend to kind of it, I, think. I appreciate that, because that I think that can happen. And again, no one that we know of, I mean, it actually, I mean, nothing personally that this is something we can relate to, but I think it's a great story and a great account that says how much of Scripture do we take as a whole? As opposed to, well, here are the bits and pieces or the red letter parts, well, this is more important because Jesus said the red letters, as opposed to the black letters of Paul or anyone else. It's, it's all scripture. So anyway, continuing on from our synopsis, um, last week we ended by asking to consider how someone who does not believe in the supernatural—I I think uh, Dr. Henderson put it great way—how about somebody who's a modern-day skeptic would approach the reading of certain passages of scripture? Sharon was kind enough to read John chapter 6 verses 1 through 14 that deals with a miracle of multiplication of loaves and fishes. So, and, and let me throw this out just as a refresher and then also as a launch point for today's lesson. Try to imagine that you're a current day skeptic. You do not believe that the supernatural happens. But you're reading the account that talks about a miraculous multiplication of loaves and fishes. The word miracle is actually used several times in the passage. How do you interpret it? Uh, As a skeptic? As a skeptic. That that happened to me in
2: college My one of my first years. Some guy said, I never even thought of anything. Well, it it was like stone soup. Everybody realized we need to feed these people, so they all started pulling out food and fed everybody. Mm -hmm.
1: So it's, everyone really brought their food, it's just, it's the miraculous appearance of the food that's already there. Because you get the binanudar or some other way. Right, so it's a way of trying to reread the story, but not take the story at face value. So we can see that would happen. Again, think also of what happens with perhaps one of the most core events of Christian history, of world history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody reads that account as a skeptic. Where do you go with it? He wasn't really dead. He wasn't really dead.
4: That, I think that's called the swoon theory, isn't it? That he, he kind of like passed out on the cross, but he wasn't really dead.
1: Yeah, that was actually made, as far as I know, I don't know of anyone who came up with it before that, but there was a book in the 1960s called The Passover Plot in which the idea was Jesus wanted to present himself as this miraculous Messiah, so he arranges, and I don't know how he does this, he arranges getting crucified, but getting pulled off the cross before he actually would have died. He would have appeared to have been dead, and I think the, uh, the sour line the gall that was given him was supposed to be some form of general anesthetic that would have (coughs) knocked him out and would have given to the Roman soldiers the appearance that he was dead, that he was taken off the cross, and that he was put into the tomb, the stone rolled over this tomb, and that in the cool of the tomb, he revived. That's the theory. Yes, thank you, Rose, for starting to laugh at that appropriately. Um, Sue, yes? Um,
2: When I think about that, though, what
1: if
2: if they still kind of have to get around, you know, his legs weren't broken, but he was still pierced with a sword. Exactly. And, I mean, even in modern day, I mean, that could be really hard to survive, you know. So, I mean, I I feel like they'd have to do something with that.
5: But didn't he refuse the murder and the, he, He turned his head? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he he, he says
1: he sampled. It says that before he was crucified, he tasted it, and then said, "No, that's what the text says." But if you're going to, if someone is going to run Rashad over the text, that's just a minor detail. But yes, uh, that is a point about how do you deal with this when it was typical for either legs to be broken. Or somehow, if your anesthetic went wrong, you could be up on the cross literally for days. Well, that's really
5: If I wanted to try to believe the the eyewitness accounts, and and yet I was a skeptic and couldn't accept the miracle. that I'm trying to think of how how they would they're they're going to attribute it to being back then with all the superstition. This is probably what happened
1: and they just interpreted it differently. Exactly, but again, notice, notice the language we're using. We have to use language in a sense of skating around the issues in order to have an interpretation stand. All the other evidence begins to collapse around it. Hey.
5: He was beaten beyond recognition. He was um, injured. He was blah, blah, blah. But yet, two days later, he appears so normal that nobody recognized him? I mean, how do you heal yourself that fast? That's the miracle.
1: That would be. And what happens when somebody who's that badly beaten, and again, from uh, Roman history, it was not uncommon for somebody who would have been beaten ahead of time. And oddly enough, this was considered a mercy. Why It was considered a mercy, in in, in an odd sort of way, in the sense of, oh, we'll beat the stuffings out of you now, and you'll die a little bit sooner on the cross, as opposed to, well, we won't lay a hand on you now, and you'll be up on the cross for several days, having all sorts of nasty things happen. Uh, But again, those are things that seem to be conveniently ignored by things like the Passover plot. Rose?
5: I heard a doctor on top radio, Christian radio, and he said that when they pierced him on the side, they got between the kidney and the pericardium or whatever, and I thought, oh yeah, this soldier was just, you know, he was very careful to get in between so that it would not kill him, but the blood in the water would come out, but it would not kill him because there's a membrane right between And so this Roman soldier,
1: apparently, was a surgeon. Yeah, which means either Jesus got real lucky that he just had this glancing blow hit him at the right spot, or he somehow had the Roman soldiers as part of the conspiracy. You can can see where this is becoming tougher and tougher to hold up upon examination David. Uh, I think it was J.B. Phillips, I want to say,
4: who said this, that uh, <clears throat> kind of uh, applies to this whole uh, theory, uh, that the Roman soldiers were a very hard bunch, and that they were very experienced, they crucified lots of people, and they mm-hmm. were very experienced in crucifying people, and they knew how to make sure you were dead, they and they that. didn't make mistakes. Yeah. So, so that he, he was just basically saying how implausible that whole idea was.
1: Exactly. But again, look at what has to happen in order to hold up one's worldview that the supernatural doesn't happen. You've got to do all these other things that don't make sense. Uh, well, let me go to our next point, because we've talked about something that I believe for us is an obvious error in interpreting Scripture. It's easier to see an incorrect method when it comes to somebody else's point of view. And in the same way that as Jesus has spoken about how it seems easier to remove the moat or the small speck of wood from another person's eye, that one should remove the log from their own. Sometimes the things that are close to home aren't all that clear to us. What I want to do is play two clips for you. One of them is an audio clip of Pastor Rick Warren speaking on CBS, the CBS Morning Show on the uh, Tuesday, November 27th. It's an audio clip, uh, lasts about 40 seconds or so. You're going to be hearing music playing in the background uh, from, uh, from a group called Coldplay. It's a song Vida La Vida. It's, I actually got the audio from a program called Issues Etc. So you might be wondering, like, why are we playing Coldplay in the middle of Pastor Warren's speaking? It's part, of buff, it's part of the buffer music going back into a segment. The second clip is a video clip. It's also Rick Warren speaking at the Desiring God conference in 2010. Actually, technically, he wasn't at the conference. He had the video in. He had a number of family crises that were going on at this time. So he did a video at the studios at Saddleback, and then um, it was live streamed over to uh, the Desiring God conference in Minnesota. I'm to him about a two-minute, two minute, 15 second clip The reason I'm leaving it that long, I want you to hear what's being said in context. So I'm not just playing a quick clip. Uh, Anyone who's been in the media or, I mean, even if you've been a teacher and somebody hears a segment of what you say, remember last week we talked about how you you can make an atheist's case from a lack of context in Scripture because the statement's there, there is no God? I want to make sure we're not doing that here. So...
6: Uh, let me fire up. What we need not is religion, but a relationship—a relationship to God. Uh, purpose-driven life is, is about that. It's—it's it's not about a religion. It's about how do I have a relationship? Uh, one day Jesus was walking down the street. And somebody asked him, "What's the most important thing in the Bible?" He says, "Okay, I'm going to summarize the whole Bible in two sentences. This is it. Cliff notes. Here's on the whole Bible." Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbors, yourself. Okay, that's you the vertical. That you're in a good place. The vertical and the horizontal, and, uh, and purpose-driven life talks about how do I do both of those? How do I learn to love God with all my heart, and how do I learn to love my neighbors, myself? But it says if you have a sharp axe, it doesn't take as much. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed. But skill will bring success. Did you hear that? It didn't say prayer will bring success. It didn't say desire will bring success. It didn't say dedication. I know a lot of people are dedicated. Skill will bring success. I can pray all I want as a farmer, and if I've got a wheat field and I use a grape picker, it isn't going to work no matter how much I pray. And if I'm out there and I'm trying to harvest tomatoes and I'm using a, a, a corn or a wheat columbine, Guess combine. Guess what? It isn't going to work. It isn't going to work. You have to have the right skills. I know a lot of guys who are godly and love the Lord and preach the word and their churches are dying on the vine. The Bible says skill will bring success. You are never wasting your time when you're sharpening your ax. That's why I challenge you to go to conferences like these, to come to conferences at Saddleback, to go to conferences around, learn from anybody and everybody. Why? Because we don't want to just know the word of God. We don't want to just have the mind of God. We don't want to just have the heart of God. We don't want to just develop the character of God. We want to do the will of God. The Bible says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. I have been misquoted more times than you can imagine when I said that we need another uh, reformation and this one needs to be about deeds, not creeds. And everybody said, oh, Warren doesn't believe in creeds. Anybody who listens to my sermon know that I preach on the creeds about every other year. I do a series on the creeds. Of course, I believe in the creeds. But the issue is not creeds alone. Creeds must be turned into deeds. It's not one or the other. It's both. The Bible says you must teach them the kind of behavior that goes with sound doctrine. We must be doers of the word. Would you write this down? You only believe the part of the Bible you actually do. You say, I believe in witnessing. Do you do it? No, then you don't believe in it. I believe in tithing. Do you do it? No, then you don't believe it. I believe in having family devotions. Do you do it? No, then you don't believe it. You only believe what you actually do. And, and the problem today is that we know far more than we're doing. And we're teaching people too much. Listen to this. We're teaching them too much. We're teaching them so much that they can't apply it.
1: Let's consider Pastor Rick Warren's words from the CBS Morning Show. And again, I don't have his entire words that we heard written down here, but this is a quote of what I wanted to go with. What's the most important thing in the Bible? And again, he so says somebody came up to Jesus and said, what's the most important thing in the Bible? He said that as Jesus said, look, I'm going to summarize the whole Bible in two sentences. Then he references Matthew chapter 22 Verses 37 through 39. And again, that's what I want you to know. The most important thing in the Bible I'm going to summarize and do this in two sentences. Also, consider what we heard from Rick Warren speaking at the Desire and God conference. He said, quote, would you write this down? You only believe the part of the Bible you actually do. Let's examine this. Let's apply what we've heard from Rick Warren in a few moments ago. Let's read Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. have your Bibles, please open up. Could I get any reader, please? Diane, thank you.
2: Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets
1: came in these two commandments. Okay, Diane, I'm actually going to ha- ask you to come back to that in a few minutes. So if you bookmark that somehow uh, and reread it. There's a certain part that I, I want to make sure that we're emphasizing and listening to when you reread it. So, let's apply what we've heard. When we've heard Diane read from Jesus' words about the two greatest commandments, Oh, I did not want to. Okay, here we go. Is our belief in the truth of these verses related to how we do them? I mean, think about it. If you don't think this is important, are you going to do it? Are you going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If you uh, if you really don't believe it, I mean, ask your skeptic neighbor, for example, or the skeptical part within your own heart. Is there some lack of faith? Do you say, I'm not sure I can do that fully. Let me ask you, how, how well have you fulfilled these two great commandments in your own life? I'll start by saying I've done them very imperfectly. And for the years before I became a believer, I didn't think they were important at all. There, true confession. I'll be going over the internet at about a month or so. And you can pick it up on CD next week. So, I'm not asking for true confessions here, but I mean, think about it in your own heart and mind. Have you completely loved the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself? Do you believe those? Do you believe that you should do those? So there's some level of imperfect following. You, you still believe it, but that belief hasn't completely manifested in those kind of commandment keeping, right? Okay, so that makes sense. We believe it, but we've done it imperfectly. In a sense, we believe imperfectly. Just if you think of the man who comes to Jesus asking for the healing of his son and goes up to Jesus and says, please heal my son if you can. I don't even remember what Jesus' response is. What do you mean? If I can. The man's counter response was, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So we've seen this. So far, this is what we're applying from what we've heard from Now, let's turn to some other passages and see how we apply those as well. Uh, could I get a reader for Genesis 1-1 and for John chapter 1, verses 1-4? Sharon, you got one of those. Do I see your hand go up? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to draft you with this. I, no, 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 you weren't doing that. Sorry, I, I saw your hand I go to up. John, before I to
5: do
1: okay, um, did you do Okay. Do you want to read a passage? Yeah. Okay, fine. Which which one do you want to read? have got both now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Honestly, this was not meant to be some sort of like one <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. um, Genesis one Genesis one. Okay.
5: In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth
1: okay how about John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4
5: go ahead
2: in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made in him was life and that life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness
1: the darkness has not understood it. Oops, I'm right too far. That's fine. Sorry. It's <laughs> So, let's go back to this. Let's, let's apply the question. You only believe the part of the Bible you actually do. Sharon, sure, I'm going to put you on the spot. When, How well have you fulfilled Genesis 101 in your life? How well have you obeyed that? In <laughs> the
5: beginning, God created the heavens and the earth.
1: Well, it says you only believe in part of the Bible you actually do, so you I believe, believe it. I believe, God. Then so why aren't you doing it? <laughs> why are you creating? No. Sue, so, Sue, so, do you believe that Jesus was in the beginning? Yes. That he was with God and was God? Why aren't you doing it? Good, obviously, obviously you see where I'm going with this. What we're looking at is what's called the category error. It's calling one thing or assuming that you have things that, um, I'll just leave that right here for right now. It's taking something and applying incorrect criteria to it. For example, if you had a milkshake, someone might say, mmm, that milkshake tasted chocolatey. It would be kind of a category error to say, that milkshake tasted loud. It tasted screechy. <laughs> it tasted crunchy. It may have felt crunchy, but it didn't taste crunchy. My point is you're applying descriptions for one thing to another. So where I'm going with this, maybe I'm still going to hold off on that. No, I'm not. <laughs> Diane, the passage you read from Matthew chapter 22. Could you read that first verse again, please, of that passage?
2: Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?
1: Thank you. What Jesus is being asked for by this lawyer or scribe, depending on the translation you're reading, he's being asked for, what's the greatest commandment in the law. He's not being asked for a summary of the Bible. You might end up seeing that, if your view of the Bible is, it's nothing more than a book of instructions. If it's more than that, then you're, then you're going to run into category errors. Again, that's why I wanted to play both of these things in context so you wouldn't hear, or I, I wouldn't skip over if Warren had said, you know, those parts of the Bible that are commands to us, that are instructions, if you don't do them, you really don't believe them. I can understand that, but he doesn't say that. And if you do, I'll get you involved moment, in Tim. I did a search to say, OK, was Rick having a bad day? I mean, if you see the beginning of the Desiring God conference video, he had a number of family crises that he describes that happened a few days before, and even earlier that day. So I like, OK, I've had a bad day. There are times I've been teaching, and we'll be driving somewhere in Julie will go, Walt, did you really mean to say, It's like, and I, I try to apologize or make up for it somehow uh, to the class. But you know, people have bad days. I was thinking, was Rick Warren having a bad day? You can find this reference repeatedly in the internet. Of he says, you only believe those parts of the Bible that you do. Uh, Tim, you had a question comment. Well, I, I
7: mean, yeah. It, I guess I was thinking for the fact he was probably at a conference and he was talking about certain topics that people were. But I also know from Rick Warren's history, his his whole starting of the church and his what we're out in California was to get people into the church. Right. And 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 sometimes you gotta do you, you do break things down in the basics, which is you know, you really are you really acting the way that you are believing? Now obviously there's a lot of things in the Bible in the very first chapter that you know what can you do with the first chapter. But are you are you trying to or are you failing <coughs> at it? We all fail at it every day. But at the same time, you are starting people at a beginning point prior to try to get them in. I mean, that's kind of, and then, then the other clip, I mean, if you're on the radio you've got 22 seconds to the response to a question, how, how can you, I don't know how many pages are in the Bible, summarize things just in a 22 second clip? I mean, it's not a bad response for a 22
1: second clip. Right, where I'm going with this, though, is that Rick Warren's approach appears to be that he sees the Bible's nothing other than a Book of Instruction. Whereas there are things, and for example, that's why I went through the perhaps seemingly silly exercise of putting my good friends, Sharon and Sue, on the line, ask them how well they've obeyed Genesis 1.1 and John 1 chapter or verses 1 through 4. You can't, because- I'll throw myself in the list. Is it Bible a book of instructions? Is it a two-part,
7: three-part?
1: Okay. It's a, we're going to cover this, but let me, let me jump ahead and answer your question right now. It contains instructions, but it's not a book only of instructions. There are other things that are there. We're going to be taking a look at that in just hopefully in a few minutes. I think we still have time to do that. Instructions are there, but they're not the only thing. Julie?
0: Yeah, and we've talked about this before, that we are so wired for law. It's easy to make us feel guilty. And and Walt and I have talked about this. It's like if you say to somebody, have you prayed enough? it's like your immediate response is no, you know what, no, I haven't prayed have you done this well and then, like we say, have you loved the Lord your God Well, everybody is going to look back they're not going to look back at what they did they're going to look back at what they didn't do the thing that they did wrong and we're so wired for that that it's easy to guilt somebody into, it's easy to manipulate somebody to do that but if that's how you're reading the Bible to get a to-do list that's how we're wired and I think more you need to take a step back from it and say this is about a relationship with God. And what it's pointing you to is not what you need to do right, but that you can't do it right, but God has done it for you. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: That God has done it right. Mm
1: -hmm. And that's where I'm trying to go with this, is that one of the errors I see creeping into a lot of the evangelical view of Scripture is that the Scripture is a book of instructions, but basically only of instructions. So it's a place to go for wisdom. It's the place to get those golden nuggets and strip mine it for the wisdom of how you can have a better marriage. How can you raise godly kids in an ungodly world? Now please understand, I am all for people raising, Christians especially, raising godly kids in an ungodly world. But if you see the scriptures only as your Helper manual for your personal agenda, you have missed the scripture point entirely. And I see that happening with much of evangelicalism. soon. Well,
2: then it's all about you and how you can improve. Yeah. You know, instead of about Christ.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's
2: just one
5: more self help exactly. book. Exactly. The bookstores are flooded with them.
1: And I, I, I do listen to a number of sermons from other churches and. I, I'm not going to go into terms of percentages, I don't know, I, have, I don't have a, a really good honest grid to be able to say of all the different churches in the United States, how many are going in this direction, but a number of them who have a prominent media presence and a, a large footprint, so to speak, in terms of people knowing about them, will do sermons with this kind of approach. And I personally I think it's extremely dangerous for the faith of the believers. And it's not more like God. Did I see your hand up? Oh, I was just going to say it seems
4: to me like a very uniquely American way of looking at the Bible because we're very pragmatic. Yes. We want it is. to solve problems. We want, and we're also very impatient. We want quick solutions. I think and so that so that you know that's very American.
1: It is. I think I've heard uh, someone say that the only really homegrown American philosophy that's ever really developed has been pragmatism. That. If you want to find the birthplace of pragmatism, so look here in the good old US of A. That's where you'll find it. Tim? It just happens we you bring up Rick
7: Warren because I'm reading a book right now where we just do a little clip. It's about social, it's about happiness essentially. They're talking about social, way people behave, the way they act, or the way they think, whether we like to know it or not. A lot of times things are happening to us and the way we behave, whether we see it or not. So part of Warren's Warren set up of his church was following that social pattern of what Americans, especially Americans think, which is a lot of people will call it. know some big churches around here that call it follow that pattern, which is get them in the door. Get them in the door by doing what they're familiar with, what they do. Now, some people don't like that. Other people will say, well, at least you're getting them in. Otherwise, they're not even going to be in So we're here on the line of bringing people in. Kind of because they're familiar with them, people are comfortable with the style of music. People are comfortable with the way people talk. Um, they're comfortable in the concert setting. Um, I, I found it very interesting because that's how a lot of Americans are. They mm-hmm. like those familiar things. So do you not do those and then not expose everybody to that? Because, you know, it's like any other, I don't know how many people have gone to uh, self-help meetings, they know that only one or two people are going to listen to them. The reality of them functional function, in particular, to, to take away what's really being said. So even at a big church function like that, you know you're bringing people in, but you really know that only a handful of people are
1: really going to take what you're what you're saying. Oh, tell you what, based on your hand and I'm going to go with you next, and I'll I'll comment on right. perhaps both. But please go ahead. Figure back on that, and throw myself a
2: little bit under the bus too. I understand what you're saying. And I, I don't think that this was meant to like guilt trip, as we traditionally think of a guilt trip, as Julie's saying, because it's part of his philosophy, and in, let's think of the good in him, I think that doing thing was to get people, everybody thinks we're okay, we grace and everything else, and this was his attempt to bring us back, bring them back to center and no, you need to be tidy, you need to be doing family devotions. And we need some of that too, right. because there's too much grace, and I feel like that was a way to steer people back in, in his trying to do it gently.
1: Timson, well, just a few comments, and I'll, I'll move on. Tim, what I think happens, and please understand, I I actually consider Rick Warren a brother in Christ. Mm-hmm. I really, I, I hope that what I'm what I played here is not seen as some form of blanket condemnation of saddleback or purpose driven life. Right there's. There is good that's there. I think there's a lot that's not good. Where I'm going with this, and you're talking about how people are getting in these churches, I think of a lesson that I learned, believe it or not, from my physics professor, not this professor physics um, instructor when I was in college. I had written out a formula and did the math, and I gave a number at the end, and then he wrote. I, I think I got half credit for what was actually good math. I mean, the, the, the math was accurate. And right underneath it, he said, units. What are you measuring? Mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody says, how much do you weigh? I'm like, I, I weigh uh, 18. Well, no, I don't. No, maybe it's 18 stone or something like that. But no, but well, my point is, I can I, I know what a stone is in, in English terms. But, 100 pounds. Thank you. <laughs> 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 uh, okay, here we go. <laughs> well, they'll be played by job of the Hut. Um, no, but my point is that you have to have some sort of measure behind it. Is it pounds? Is it kilograms? Uh, in, in terms of force, is it newtons? I mean, things like that. When it comes to the work of people like Rick Moran at sail bat, or a Bill Hybels at Willow Creek, one of my concerns is is that there's a confusion about The fact that you have a human who's sitting in a seat, what do you measure or regard the human as? Do you treat them as somebody who's a convert? Do you treat them as somebody who is potentially a seeker? Who's an unbeliever at this point, but is interested in things of Christianity or spirituality? How do you measure that? And are you doing things to disciple people who you believe are in that role? I don't know how effectively that works. I, I, I really don't. I mean, in terms of the numbers of people who show up in places like, the, I mean, Joel Osteen's church, for example, Lakewood in Houston, uh, I think for three services he gets somewhere on the order of combined 50,000 people a weekend. I mean, that's like taking Comerica Park and then adding on half, basically half of Joe Lewis Arena every weekend with the seats filled. But what's, what's being taught, but also how do you regard the people sitting in the seats? They're humans, but do you regard them as believers or do you treat them as seekers? And unless you know the units of what you're dealing with or the category, I think you might not be applying things properly. Uh, hopefully that made sense. Uh, a lot of these different churches do have a lot of people who come in on a given weekend. Are they believers? Are they people who are, who are seekers? One of the criticisms I've heard, and, and again trying to keep things in balance, is that for a lot of churches who are on the Willow Creek model for example, one of the issues is that people who are by their own admission, their own testimony, they are believers. They often believe that trying to stay in that environment is withering to their spiritual life. That they have to find other means to get spiritual nourishment. If they were just to go to church on Sunday, they would, according to their own testimony, wither on the vine. So that's the mix of what we're looking at here with a lot of the church scene, I'm not going to say all, it's, it's not, I, most of the congregations in the United States still have, I think it's under 150 numbers. So believe it or not, we're at TCC, we're actually in the upper tier of that. But, but just some thoughts about that, and, and trying to keep that in mind, that I'm not going to deny that somebody had a valid desire to see people come to the Lord, I pray that the methodology, is biblical. And I'll leave that to someone else to judge.
5: Uh, Sharon, I, a thought just came into my head about the value of a secret church. We used to call it a secret church, and right. the whole ministry of that church was geared to pulling people in and getting them introduced to to the salvation in Jesus Christ, and um, and a surface a surface uh, introduction to the Bible. But if that if they know that is their function, then that it seems like their ministry should also include once they've been introduced to Christ they made a profession of faith, then to thun- funnel them to a church whose ministry is teaching the depth of scripture so they can grow. And,
1: and there may be churches that are doing that, or uh, I know, for example, um, places like Kensington, not too far from here, uh, one of the things they really try to stress doing for their people who are believers, profess, self-professed believers, that uh, they will try to make sure they're channeled into small groups and have a form of spiritual nourishment there. Uh, I'll go on the record and say I've been involved with a uh, <coughs> men's group at Kensington with a, a Bible and a book study over the, almost this whole last year. And of the gentlemen I've met, it appears to me, and again this is just an outward evidence saying that I don't have a spiritual guide or cover
5: <laughs>
1: I don't have that. <laughs> you know, maybe it would come in handy, but it would take a lot of the mystery out of life. Um they evidence a strong love for Christ and a strong love for his word. And I I, I really find that heartening, but then again, there's a separate funneling for um uh, for spiritual nourishment. Did, did I see your hand up? And
2: I know that those churches have have evolved within themselves too and they have made more of a Effort to be more Christ-centered even on Sundays—they've gone away from the, the total seeker model thing to to trying to do a little bit more on right. Sundays too. And they're good in their place, I think, but right, they have to be careful. You're totally right.
1: Yeah. Yes.
2: i was thinking of just holding my my question.
3: Where and how has it come about that we suddenly see the church as? As the means by where you bring people in to present the gospel and recruit people into membership versus a place where believers gathered to encourage and support and one love one another. It seems to me if we are growing in our faith, if we're conformed to the image of the Lord, if we are encouraging and nurturing one another in our faith, faith, when I leave this body and I go out into the world, that is what's going to attract people to Christ.
1: I, I agree. I, strongly agree. Yeah, it just uh, seems
3: like all of a sudden we, we see this now. We have to. It's just like this numbers. It's a miracle vote that we have to have, and it's superficial, and it's it's um, it's a to do list. It's it's performance. I mean, he said in his own clip about this being a relationship, not a religion. But yet, everything he's pointing to is is a religion. It's it's a to do list of performance, um, rather than an outward expression of Christ which is developed within the believer.
1: I I think what can happen is that what may have started as good intentions on the part of Bill Heibel, Rick Rick Warren uh, and others to get people in the door I think you can be misled by having people who are humans who are sitting in the seats and they ah, I'm having success because we are a very success-driven culture. We look for ways of quantifying that, of putting a number behind it. And I think when you have 2,000 people sitting in your chairs as opposed to, let's say, 100. But does, who's,
3: who, does God see that as success?
1: I don't I don't think that's necessarily yeah. the case. Yeah. I, I don't mean, think it's like, necessarily. We're, we're and, evaluating and, and, things, I think, from our own perspective. From what I know of church history, and I think it ties into—I know David was bringing up the point about pragmatism. I think that I cannot think of a church model that used the Willow Creek model before 1975 in church history. It's a—it's a unique way, and I don't think innovation is always wrong. I mean, I, there's a lot of good stuff going on in the internet, for example, that Christians are doing—wonderful use of it—and. Time is going to shake out whether or not some of these things need to be tweaked, if they're long-headed. Look at the fruit that that has been born, and I'll I'll leave it at that. The reason I went with all of this, and I appreciate the discussion, is that when you have someone who has large-scale influence, as Rick Warren does, for example, but his view of Scripture appears to be, and maybe I'm misreading what I've read, and I've read a lot of his stuff, that he seems to see Scripture as an instruction book, which is why you can say, hey, the guy comes up to Jesus on the street and says, giving a summary of the Bible, when Jesus is actually giving a summary of the two great commandments of the law. Let me try to handle a few more points about this. Hopefully it'll help tie up some of these ends, and then we'll, we'll just move along. And we'll resume two weeks from today at 9 o'clock on December 23rd. Uh, The Bible contains several types of statements. Uh, Interrogatory, for example. It's where we get the term interrogation. A question, like, is today a Sunday? Indicative, which means it indicates something. It's a statement of truth just indicating what is. The sky is blue. An imperative, a command to do something. Think of law or instruction. Pick up the book. In our examples that we've seen, Matthew chapter 22, 36 through 40 is basically a set of imperatives. You know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Genesis 1.1 and the John passage is one that I, uh, that Sharon and Sue were so kind to read and put up with my mock harassing. Um, they're indicatives. They state what is. And you can have a distorted lens in reading scripture if you forget that the Bible contains both indicatives and imperatives, telling you things that are, and then things that flow from it, things that you should be doing. Great example if you want to see this, Book of Colossians. The chaptering is almost perfect in terms of showing this. And it's not pure indicative in chapters 1 and 2 but it's pretty much. Chapters 3 and 4, primarily imperative. And what you're going to find is that when God tells us, here is what Christ did for you. He bore your sins on the tree. He rose for your justification. You are in Christ if you believe in him, and having that, you have eternal life and he wants you to build up people who believe in him and gather those who still don't. There's the indicative, therefore, we now do this. Here's what is, now here's what should follow, here's what you should do as a result of it. Um, let me read John chapter 6, 28, 29, just really briefly. And this will be our last slide. Remember, and again, I'm not going to harp on this. I'm not trying to beat him as a straw man. But when Rick Warren was saying, what's the summary of the Bible? Notice what Jesus says here after uh, he did a miracle, multiplication of loaves and fishes, and the people were kind of impressed. The people then asked him, this is John six twenty-eight. then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Wouldn't the love you, Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? This is Jesus' perfect launch point for this. But what does he give us? The work of God is this, it's okay. to believe in the one he has sent. So the central part of what we're supposed to do is to believe in Christ. That's the summary. Things flow from that. Because if it doesn't, what that means is you have one of two models. Either Christ is pointing at these things in Scripture and says, here, I'm a teacher. Let me show you some really good stuff. Here's a lot of good wisdom. Let me point you to this. Or what these points in Scripture do is actually point to Christ. Where's the direction the emphasis going? Is Jesus pointing you to how to have a better marriage? Or are the passages about how we're supposed to be living a better life point back to Christ? Just a thought about the way trends go today in the evangelical world. I'll leave you with that. We'll resume, God willing, in two weeks 9 o'clock here. And uh, God bless you. Have a uh, wonderful day. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog.
0: Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash RestoringTheCore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for The Lens of Glory.